Our Bible reading today comes from the book of Genesis. We're continuing our series through that, and we're looking at chapter 16 today. So it'll be on the screen behind me. Um, otherwise, it'd be great for you to follow along in your Bibles as well. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some baskets just along the aisles. You can grab one out of there. And if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take that, and that is our gift to you. So, Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son. And Abraham gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had borne. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Amen. Thank you, Hayden. Today, as Hayden mentioned, we're continuing our series through the book of Genesis, and it's a series called Beginnings. If you haven't been here for it so far, you can follow up on the podcast. Um, But last week was Mother's Day, and we camped in Genesis chapter 16, and last week we focused on the two mums-to-be in the story. Their names are Sarai and Hagar. And we saw that Sarah made many mistakes, and yet God was gracious to her. And we saw that Hagar did everything right, and yet everything went wrong. And even when everything went wrong, God's grace was still sufficient for her as well. Today we're back in chapter 16, because while it was good to focus on the role of these two women for Mother's Day, there's actually a whole lot more to cover in the chapter, and I think it's important that we do so in this series. Anytime you read a chapter of the Bible or a section of Scripture, it's important to ask the question, what is the big idea? What is scripture 
uh, trying to teach us in and through the context in which it was written and what is it speaking into our lives today. As I look through the chapter um, again this week on Thursday, the big question of this part of the text, I thought, was the question, is God faithful? Now, if you've been following the story, you'll know that Abram and Sarai had been chosen by God and he had made some incredible promises to them. He had said to Abram, I want you to leave your family, your friends, um, your father's household, the inheritance, and I want you to go to a land I will show you. And as you go, I promise some incredible things to you. I promise that I'll make your name great. I promise that you will become and lead a great nation. I will provide you land. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. You'll have many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. And through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. That's a pretty incredible little package of promises that God makes to this guy. What we see in Genesis 12 when he makes these promises is really the big reveal of God's redemption plan or restoration plan for humanity. At the fall in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And since that time, sin had entered God's very good creation. And we had seen that the spiral downward of mankind from that moment as sin impacted in a devastating way all that God had created. Now, God calls Abram with this restoration plan. As we look at Abram's life unfold, it's true that God used Abram in incredible ways But the promise to Abram that he would be a blessing to all nations is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of Abram. Jesus is the only one who can reverse the curse of sin and death that came in at the fall by dying in the place of all mankind who have sinned and conquering the power of sin and death by rising from the dead on the third day, meaning that in him we can as well. He's the only hope we have. This hope we have is an eternal one. So we often think when we read the Bible that the gospel starts in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But the gospel actually starts in the very first book of the Bible. God is revealing his restoration plan for humanity from the very first book. And this book from the start front cover to the very back cover is pointing to Jesus the whole time. It's screaming out his name. You'll find him in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You'll find him in every book of the Bible. Jesus is there if we look hard enough. And so the whole book points to its fulfillment in Jesus and it starts right here in the promise made to Abram. When God made the promise to Abram initially, Abram was 75 years old. Now, you're probably aware that's not a really young age to start a family. If you're 75 here today, you're probably not think of, thinking of starting a family uh, anytime soon. Those days are kind of gone behind you. So you can excuse Abram and Sarai for thinking that God would get onto that promise ASAP, that he'd be onto it ASAP, that if that was me, I'd be thinking, God knows how old I am. So he knows it's important we get this thing moving. In fact, it probably would have been better 50 years ago, um, but it's better late than never. So I'll trust him in that and he's going to do it kind of right now. But by the time we get to chapter 16, verse 1 tells us that Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It's now 10 years since God made the promise to Abraham and Sarah. 10 years had passed by since the promise was made and Abram and Sarai are now in their mid-80s. Sarai has looked in the mirror She has considered the the fact that she's barren. She's looked at her wrinkly old husband and she thinks there is no chance that this promise is going to happen as God said it would. It's too hard. It's too late. It's too bad. And so if you're writing notes today, the first thing I think we can learn from this chapter of Scripture is that waiting 
uncomfortable, isn't it? Can you feel the anger stirring up? Come on, we've got lunch. Get on with it. Waiting. Waiting reveals our character and faith, perhaps like nothing else. I'm pretty convinced that in our broken, sinful state, we're not wired to be patient. Have you ever been in a waiting room at a doctor's surgery or, heaven forbid, in an emergency department? You will know we're not really good at waiting. And you'll watch people around you in the waiting room and they will show very clearly that they're not wired to wait. But I think perhaps the most obvious example of our impatience is when a husband takes his wife out for a romantic dinner date. In this scenario, everyone in the equation often demonstrates impatience. And it starts well before the evening. Now, at this point of the story, my wife's sick today and she's not here, but I need to point out for my own safety that this is not referring to my marriage. Uh, this is uh, for illustration purposes only. Are we okay with that? Are we okay with that? Good. So what happens here stays here. Remember the rules? Okay, great. So this is not talking about my marriage in any way or form. But the impatience starts all the way back at the booking phase where the husband says, darling, I'm going to take you out to that new restaurant this Saturday night. And the wife is like, oh, you're the best. That's awesome. I've been wanting to go to that. And then she says that question, have you booked? And the husband says, yeah, 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 I'll do it. I've just got a few things to finish and then then I'll get onto it. Half an hour later, have you booked? Uh, No, I'm nearly finished. I'll do it in a second. Uh, Two days later, exactly the same conversation, exactly the same response. Have you booked? No, I'll do it in a moment. I'm getting to it. And then you get to the day and the question comes, you made the booking, right? And you're like, yeah, of course I made the booking as you sneak off to the office to make the last minute phone call to the restaurant. And, And you ring them up and you're like, have you got any bookings for tonight? You're whispering at this stage. It's desperate. No, sir, sorry, we've got no, no bookings tonight. It's life or death. You're not whispering anymore. I need a booking. And they're like, calm down, sir. Uh, okay, we can fit you in on the balcony outside. It's cold. If it rains, you're going to get wet. I'll take it. I'll take whatever. Just book me in. And so you're booked in, right? And so you're ready to almost go, but we head to a different phase now. And the phase is the getting ready phase. And this is a very, very long phase. The husband showers, shaves and shines his shoes. He deodorizes, dresses and aftershaves. And that's a total of six minutes. (laughs) In that same six minutes, the wife has chosen her first proposed outfit. This process takes four different attempts with four different outfits before she settles on one. 24 minutes have now elapsed and the husband has been ready for 18 minutes. The wife then moves to the shower phase which in terms of time limit feels more like an evolutionary process. Especially if he says those terrifying words, I need to wash my hair, which is 23 seconds in a six-minute process for the man, but it's like the equivalent of flying a plane to the Bermuda Triangle if you're a woman, and if she's got to shave her legs, then there's a chance she may never come out again. But if she makes it out, there's still a lot to do. She's got to get dressed now. Not only does she have to get dressed, but she needs to dry her hair, style her hair, do her makeup, put on the perfume. Now it's the husband's time to get impatient. Come on, love, we're going to be late, as he daydreams about the steak that he's going to order at the restaurant. And by this time, I'm stressing out completely. Sorry, did I say I'm stressing out? Sorry. I meant the fictional character husband in this made-up story is stressing out. Remember, this is not my marriage, illustration purposes only. But you head off, and you get to the restaurant. And there's that little sign there that says, please wait to be seated. Because I booked late, the place is packed. And so you're standing there for 15 minutes, and now it's time for the husband and wife to practice their impatience together. 
as they stand there and they wait to be seated. What seems like eternity happens, uh, the people come over and they take you to your seat and you're ready to order. So the, the, the waitress, she comes over, she seats you and she gives you a menu and she says, can I take your order? And it's like, you just gave us the menu. And she says, well, I'll give you a minute, which she literally means 60 seconds. And she's back and she's saying, can I take your order now? And so you rush your order, you order it, and then you start to wait again. So it's her turn to be impatient, the, the, the waitress. Now it's your turn again as you wait for the food. And that often feels like an eternity, doesn't it? And after 20 minutes, the person who came in 20 minutes after you is getting their meal. And you're still waiting there. 45 minutes later, you finally put up your hand and you say, when's it coming? Where, where's dinner? It's coming, sir. So is Christmas. Get on with it. And by this stage, you're getting very, very agitated. And then you eat your meal, and it's nice, and you're getting to the last fork of that steak, and the waitress comes back up, and they start clearing the table, don't they? They start taking away the plates, and, and why do they do that? Because they want you to order up, pay up, get up, and get out, because there's more people to serve. This is what we call a romantic dinner. And it demonstrates that we're not very good at waiting, even in the simplest things. In fact, our waiting often reveals our character and our faith like nothing else. As we looked at the chapter last weekend, we saw that Sarah and Abram would not wait any longer. And so Sarah took matters into her own hands. In her eyes, God had not and perhaps would not fulfill his promise. And in her impatience, she had an idea to make it happen herself. The idea was to force her husband onto her slave and they would make a family through her. And she thought, we will make this promise happen ourselves one way or another. And so as I reread the chapter on Thursday, I couldn't help but feel that God was being put on trial. And the unspoken accusation was that God is not faithful. When someone's put on trial, there's quite a process. You have a judge and a jury and you have the accused and the accuser. The charges are laid, the evidence is presented, considered and judged, and the sentence is pronounced either guilty or not guilty. It feels as though Sarai and Abram had considered the evidence and they had pronounced judgment They'd come to their decision and they decided that God is not faithful to what he promises. It'd be fair to say that they hadn't considered all the evidence. So I think if we look at the story up until this point, God had blessed them in many gracious ways despite their disobedience. And even in the promise of a child and descendants, they had not been fully realized in the way they expected, so they assumed that God was not going to be faithful to what he'd said. And their response to that revealed, I think, their faith and their character. First of all, it revealed their faith. In the last chapter, Abram had believed the promises of the Lord. God had reaffirmed his promises. It said, Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. But now the faith of both him and Sarai had wavered so much that they could no longer believe that those promises would come to pass. If you've got your Bibles, you can look at verse 1. It says, now Sarai's, uh, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne to him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham, like an idiot, I put that bit in there, agreed to what Sarai said. The words the Lord has kept me from, I think reveals the posture of Sarai's heart. You see, if I was waiting for something in my life to happen that haven't happened yet, but I was still believing in faith, I might say something like God's will for that to happen has not occurred yet but I'm still waiting and I'm still trusting. However, if I said that Rowan has kept that from happening, it's Rowan Walker that has kept me from moving forward in my life and faith, which is probably true, he's nodding his head, what would I be doing? I'd be blaming Rowan. It's Rowan's fault. 
Now, this is what Sarai is doing, but she's not blaming Rowan because she didn't know Rowan. She's directly blaming God. It's God who has kept me from having a child. It is God that is the roadblock, the obstacle that is stopping this promise that he made come to pass. She's basically saying, God, we don't need you anymore. You've had your chance. You blew it. We're going to do it ourselves. Her faith or lack thereof is being revealed for all to see. In the waiting room, our faith is revealed. So I wonder what we're like in the waiting room. I wonder if there's things in your life right now that you are waiting for. What do you do in the waiting room? Do you grumble? Do you compare yourself to others? Do you get bitter at what they've got and what you don't have? Do you get angry at God? Or do we trust him in the waiting room? It reveals our faith when we're in the waiting room, but it also reveals our character. And when you look at Abram and Sarai's life, what is revealed is pretty tragic. What is revealed is that their character is lacking in many different ways. And it shows that they were willing to sexually exploit a young slave girl in order to get what they wanted. And even worse than that, after they did it, they didn't repent of it. They didn't take responsibility for it in any single way. It's like us, isn't it? We don't like to take responsibility for our actions, so we we put our bad behaviour on other people and we say, well, if they hadn't have done that, if they had done this, then I wouldn't have acted in the poor way that I've behaved. And this is what Abram and Sarai were doing. It was clear that they had not taken responsibility. And I think Sarai is a particularly obvious example in this story because the truth is that the whole thing was her idea. In verse 2, she says, Abram, go sleep with my slave. You know when ladies say things and you kind of try and read between the lines, what are they really trying to say? I think it was pretty clear. Abram, go sleep with my slave. He's in the next room. Go and find her. Perhaps I, Sarai, can build a family through her. Now when Hagar, the slave, got pregnant and started to despise Sarai for what she'd done to her, Sarai then says to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. Abram, go and sleep with my slave. Now, happy wife, happy life. (laughs) All right, I'll do what you said. It's your fault, Abram, that I'm suffering what I'm going through. It's so typical of human nature, isn't it, that we like to find other people to blame. You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Well, your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So even after she'd been exploited, that they got what they wanted out of her, they still mistreat her so badly that she has to flee. You see, not only is their faith revealed in the waiting room, but their character is revealed also. And what I've observed uh, in my life so far, my limited experience, I've observed that in the waiting room, a lot of mistakes are made. I've seen people so desperate for a life partner that they settle for anyone who shows interest and has a heartbeat when they're in the waiting room. It's true. I've seen people muck around sexually when they're in the waiting room because they can't wait and it causes all sorts of damage and destruction in their lives and the lives of others. I've seen people rip people off when they're in the waiting room. I've seen people do whatever it takes, even if it's wrong, in the waiting room. Abram and Sarah made a massive mistake in the waiting room. And as you look through, that, through history, from that moment to now, you will see that the consequences of that mistake are still impacting our world today. In verse 12, Hagar was to give birth to Ishmael, and it says, He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. 
Now, if you know history, you'll see that from Ishmael came the Arab people and the Islamic faith by extension. And today in the Middle East, there is constant conflict and strife between the Arabs and the Jews, Israel and Palestine, fighting over land, fighting over religion. It's a tragedy that started right here in Genesis chapter 16. And what I want you to see is this, that the mistake of a moment has impacted the multitudes. The mistake of a moment has impacted the multitudes. Let's not be silly enough to think our mistakes made in the waiting room won't have a profound impact on our lives and on the lives of those around us. Mistakes are made in the waiting room, and I want to tell you why this morning. Mistakes are made in the waiting room because we ask the wrong question. The question we ask in the waiting room is why? Why, Lord, aren't you answering my prayer? Why am I waiting? Why aren't you coming through for me? And I think it's the wrong question. The right question is what? Lord, what are you teaching me? Lord, what do I need to learn in the waiting? What areas of my life are you shaping? What are you preparing for me? I remember when I felt a call into ministry, and the moment I felt the call, I felt like I was ready. You know, I'm ready just to go and lead a church and to preach and do whatever. And I felt I was ready. But over a period of time, God showed me a whole lot of things in my life and character that really revealed that I wasn't ready. And so I stopped asking the question, why, God, aren't you opening the right doors? Why aren't you providing the opportunity? And I started asking the question, God, what do I need to learn here? What areas of my character do you still need to shape? And the ironic thing is when I got to the point of thinking, man, I'm nowhere near ready, that's when I was ready. And that's when the opportunity came because I was dependent on God rather than myself by the time I got to that point. You see, the waiting room of our lives doesn't just reveal our character and our faith like nothing else. It shapes our character and life like nothing else. Let me say that again. The waiting room in our lives doesn't just reveal our character and faith like nothing else. It shapes our character and faith like nothing else. So let's go back to the original question I asked at the start of the sermon. The big question of this passage is, is God faithful? And I want to tell you today that the answer to that question is a resounding yes, but it comes with a disclaimer. God is faithful, but he's faithful to his promises, not to our expectations. In the waiting room, Abram and Sarai came to the conclusion that God was not faithful. And to be honest, whether we verbalize it or not, it's the conclusion that we often land on as well in areas of our life. Sarai had an expectation of when she would have a child, and when it didn't happen according to her expectation, she came to the conclusion that God's not faithful, that he couldn't, that he wouldn't, that he hasn't. And I think our expectations are a little bit misguided as well. I think our expectations of God are often shaped by our misunderstanding and our misapplication of Scripture. Shaped by verses like Psalm 37 verse 4, which is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, says, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know what part we focus on? And he will give you the desires of your heart. This is where things like the prosperity doctrine thrive. And they, they, they take a verse like that and they go, well, God's going to give me the desires of my heart. If I just walk up the church, if I just read my Bible, if I just tithe 10%, I'm going to be filthy rich. It's like an equation. I do this and God will do that. Yes. If I delight in the Lord, I'll get my Ferrari. I'll be happy and I'll be healthy and I'll be prosperous. But I've just got to say it's not consistent with a biblical worldview at all. As we look at many men and women throughout Scripture who are incredibly faithful, we see faithfulness and suffering holding hands. You and I find ourselves in the mess 
that we've created through our sin. We're not immune from the brokenness of our sin and the sin of others. We're not above the struggle and the suffering of this world. But in the midst of it, we have a God who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you. And as he says to Abram, a chapter before, I will be your great reward. You see, in him, in him, there's no guarantee that our life will be easy. But there is a guarantee of eternal promises that when this mess is redeemed and when this world is recreated and when sin and death is done away with, we'll be left with God in his presence, experiencing the blessing that we were created for but have given away by our sin. And so as we go through life, there are many blessings, aren't there? We open our eyes, we'll see uh, in the Western world particularly, we are blessed beyond imagination. But everything we're blessed with is not because we deserve it. It's not because we earned it. It's because we have an incredibly gracious, loving, generous God. He is the, the giver of every good and perfect gift. What an awesome God that we serve. So when we read Psalm 37 verse 4 correctly, we'll read the first part. In fact, that'll be our focus, that we will delight in the Lord. Despite our circumstances, despite whether the prayers have been answered the way we expected them to, our job, our, our delight is to delight in the Lord, that he would be our joy, that he would be our hope, that he would be the center of our lives, that he is our great reward. And we delight in him. And what we find is we delight in him, that our will actually submits itself to his will, and it's his will that comes to pass in and through our lives, because his desires have become our desires, and they're the things that come to pass. You see, sometimes we act like his sovereign will over all creation will conform to my will for my life and that will will come to pass. But can you see how arrogant that is? This week I was at a conference in Sydney and I got to the airport. I think there's a photo that's going to come up. And when I got to the airport, I saw uh, the big planes. And I'm always in awe of how big these things are. There's some planes there and, and everything seems so big and so massive. And then I made my way into the airport and the terminal and and there's people everywhere. And it's pretty typical of a scene in an airport. People are running around frantically. They're heading for their flights. They're picking up their luggage. They're thinking about their life. They're distracted by their circumstances, barely noticing what was going on around them. And I pondered that this week. And I think that's often how we live our lives, isn't it? Like we are the center of the universe. Like everything revolves around us, that our lives are so big. I must admit, at the airport, I was rushing around myself. But as we took off in the plane, as we soared into the sky, there's another photo that's going to come up now. My life was put into drastic perspective as I was reminded of the bigness of creation and the massiveness of God. They're above the clouds. And you know, the biggest things down on the ground, as you get up in the air, you look down, you can't even see them. They're like ants. And you're reminded that I am one person in over 110 billion people who have walked this world and to think that God, who is holding all creation in his hand, would park all of that to cater for my every need is kind of crazy. Kind of crazy. God's faithful to his promises. He's not faithful to our expectations. Down on the ground, we think that life revolves around us. But when we zoom out, we get a glimpse of the bigness of God. We see the bird's eye view. All that is happening, God is holding it in his hands. And God's bird's eye view is much bigger than our view. Even though we think we can see everything and we understand everything, God's view is so much bigger than ours. You know what? There will be some prayers in your life that may never come to pass. And in those times, I want to encourage you today, don't dwell on the question why, 
But ponder the question, what? In those times when we don't understand, let the bird's eye view of God remind us that God's ways are higher than our ways. The final thing, if you're taking notes, is this, that God's timing is perfect and his grace is sufficient. God is outside of time. He doesn't conform to our pitiful timelines. Sarai and Abram made a massive mistake in the waiting room because God didn't operate according to their schedule. God doesn't operate to our schedule, but that doesn't mean that he's late or that he's forgotten. I think the part I love the most in this chapter is after Hagar has run away because Sarai had mistreated her so badly. And what I love about that is that Hagar may have felt alone, but God hadn't forgotten her. In verse 11, it says, The Lord has heard of your misery. In verse 13, it says, The Lord has also spoken to her because he saw her. I love this. The Lord heard her. The Lord spoke to her because the Lord saw her. If you're in the waiting room in life today, I want to guarantee you that God hears your prayers, that he sees your circumstances, and his desire is that he would speak into your life. In Sarai and Abram's opinion, God was late. In their eyes, his whole plan, his whole promise, his whole character was put on trial because from their perspective, he was late. But I want to remind us today that his timeline is not our timeline. And as we continue through Genesis in the series, you'll see that God is faithful to Abram and Sarah. I want to finish with a little preview of what is to come at the start of chapter 21. It says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. Those words are very important because Sarah had heard something, but she hadn't heard what he'd actually said. She'd assumed what he'd said, and she'd judged him on her expectations on what she'd assumed she'd heard. But now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. He is faithful to his promises. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. God is never late. Today we commissioned Jared Swanton up here on the platform. And it's exciting to commission someone to be on mission in a local high school in our area. And we celebrate that today. But I've journeyed with Jared for a number of years and I've seen the changes in his life, the way that God's grown him over time. And I've also seen the disappointment over the last couple of years as he's applied for role after role and got knocked back. And it's difficult. I don't know whether he wavered in his faith, but if he did, he never showed that with me. I saw a guy that kept trusting God, kept praying that the right position would come, and now, not in his time, that was two years ago, but in God's time, at the right time, in the right role, God has provided a great opportunity. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's ultimate plan to use Abram to be a blessing to all nations for his glory was never in doubt despite Abram and Sarai's disobedience. He knew exactly how it would unfold. He knew exactly when it would unfold. He knew exactly what Christ would achieve. And in the same way, he knows exactly what our future holds. As we wait on him in the waiting room, I pray that we would ask him the question what more than we would ask him the question why because in the waiting room he not only reveals our character and faith he shapes it he is faithful to his promises not our expectations and he will do it in his way in his time according to his will and so i pray
individually and as a church, that we would learn to trust him as we hold on to the eternal promises for us in Christ. And let me finish with a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. He put his spirit within us, in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. What an awesome God we serve. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Well, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's challenging and encouraging at the same time. Today, Lord, we are challenged by what we see in Abram and Sarah's life. We see their shortcomings in character and faith. And we can easily judge, but Lord, we're so often there ourselves. And so we repent of those times when we fail to trust you, when we uh, take things into our own hands and make those mistakes in the waiting room that could be avoided if we would just patiently wait for you. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises. That you're faithful to your promises, not our expectations. And so I pray, Lord, that our expectations would be shaped by Scripture and our understanding of who you are. Lord, we know that your timing is perfect. And so today I pray for people who are in the waiting room, in different areas of life, that they really want to see breakthrough. And they feel like nothing's happening. Perhaps they feel at times that you're not even listening. But Lord, we're reminded of what happened with Hagar, that you saw her, that you heard her, that you spoke to her. Lord, as we listen to you, I pray that you do those things in our life as well. And that would remind us that you are a good and gracious God. And even if this life doesn't work at anything like we hope or want or expect... Lord, we grab hold of the eternal promises in you, that we will be with you, that you will be our God, and we will be your people. Lord, we look for that day, we long for that day, but while we wait, Lord, I pray that we would faithfully serve you in every area of our lives, and we pray to the powerful, life-changing name of Jesus Christ. Amen.